So today we're concluding our fall preaching series, Living the Mission. And the theme of our series throughout the fall has simply been, if we are going to live the mission, we must first understand the mission. And so this is where we've been. In week one, we laid the foundation of mission in the Old Testament from Jeremiah 29. The Israelites are in exile in Babylon and the instructions that God gave them of how to live in, an, in, a, in a land that's opposite to the values of what they believe and so on. We looked at that. In week two, we looked at Luke chapter four and where Jesus stood in the synagogue on the Sabbath and stated his mission to those who were listening as he read the Isaiah passage. And we said that his mission is a fulfillment of the year of Jubilee, and his mission is about restoration, release, and recovery. And then we started to look at specific examples of Jesus living that mission out. And so, in week three, we looked at John 4 and the woman at the well, and said living the mission is centered in loving the broken, the confused, the hurting, and those who need forgiveness. In week four, we considered the paralytic in Luke 5, and we said living the mission will require coming alongside those who need help finding their way to Jesus. On week, six, uh, week five, rather, we considered the sinful woman in Luke 7, and we said living the mission will require us to see people the way Jesus sees them. Week six, we considered the lepers in Luke 17, and we said living the mission means being aware that God can use you even though you're on a road you never set out to be on. Week seven, we consider Jesus' encounter with the demon-possessed man in Mark 5, and we said living the mission means there will be moments when we'll be forced outside our comfort zones, and our reliance will need to be on the authority of Jesus, not in our own abilities. So today, week eight, we're going to be considering the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. Heru Onada was an Imperial Japanese Army intelligence officer who fought in World War II. On the 26th of December, 1944, he was sent to the Philippines with these orders. Under no circumstances was he to surrender or to take his own life. Now, despite the end of the war... He was a Japanese holdout who did not surrender in August of 1945 because he believed that the amount, announcement of surrender was a lie. Haru remained in the jungle in the Philippines for 29 years until 1974 because he would not believe that the war had ended. All of the pamphlets they dropped down, he just thought all of that all was, just, was just lies. He was finally persuaded to emerge after his aging former commanding officer was flown in by the Japanese government in 1974 and personally rescinded the order that was given to him in 1944 to not surrender. Now, sometimes a refusal to surrender is rooted in commitment. It's rooted in loyalty. It's, it's rooted in resolve. And sometimes a refusal to surrender is rooted in selfishness. 
greed, pride, control. And that is the case with the rich young ruler in our scripture today. He too refused to surrender, but for very different reasons. Living the mission will create moments when we and those that we are engaging will be faced with the challenge to surrender to Jesus the priorities that are hindering the opportunity that we have to come into relationship with Him. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to read together Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 23. It says, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Let's walk through this this morning. Let's start with the context. The main character in this passage is who we refer to and scripture states as the rich young ruler. We don't know his name. We just know him as the rich young ruler. We're told that he approached Jesus. He engaged Jesus in a conversation. And the conversation centered around his desire to have eternal life. Now, while we may not know a lot about this man, we do know a few things. We know that he was rich. And most likely he was rich because he came from a wealthy family. And we can assume that because wealth in this time was often passed down within the family. The ability to be able to become wealthy, to, to come out of poverty, to become wealthy in this time in history was almost impossible. So it was likely that he was born into wealth. We know that he was young. Now, the word young here means someone between the ages of approximately 24 and 40. And so, if you're in that age bracket, you're young. If you're not, you're not young. But maybe you can become like the guy I read about in the paper this week from the Netherlands who says, if people can change their gender, he's changing his birth date. And he's taking 20 years off and giving himself a new birth date. I'm just putting that out there. Christians have been doing that for years. We just call it hair dye. But anyway, it's okay. And thirdly, we know that he was a ruler. And a ruler is a broad term, obviously, meaning one in authority. But based on his title, he was a leading personality amongst the Jewish culture. Most likely a synagogue official, a member of the Sanhedrin. That's where it seems to point. Now, Sanhedrin, they were the legal experts. Their role was to interpret the existing laws within uh, the Jewish culture and to write new laws to help people live out their faith. And so, a Sanhedrin member would be very knowledgeable of the Scriptures. It was the Sanhedrin, if you read closely, that conspired to have Jesus killed. It was the Sanhedrin who bribed Judas to betray Jesus. And so, this rich young ruler would have grown up wealthy would have been trained in the synagogue from childhood. 
is now a religious authority and a leader within Israel. He spent his lifetime learning. He spent his lifetime applying what was required of him to attain eternal life. Yet there's this nagging dissatisfaction within him that something's missing. Something's just not right. Now, maybe he kept this concern to himself and he just privately reflected on it and struggled with it. We don't know. Perhaps there were times that he talked about it with fellow rulers and say, hey guys, do you ever wonder if this is all enough? Do you ever feel like anything's missing? And I don't know, maybe someone said, yeah, I felt like that before. Or maybe they brushed him off and they said, you know what? You're a spiritual leader. You follow the laws. You write a lot of these laws. Don't worry, everything's okay. We don't know what's transpired up to this moment, but we know that this is something he's wrestling with. Now, despite the fact that he's diligent to keep the laws as best he could, there's still something missing. He was not confident that he was guaranteed eternal life with God after death. And he sincerely needed to know more than anything that his eternity with God was secure. So he was searching for this assurance that he was ready and prepared and eligible for eternity with God. Secondly, the obstacle. The man's restlessness, his dissatisfaction, his struggle in this area led him to do what was really an unthinkable thing. He came to Jesus. Now, we need to understand that Jesus is not accepted by the religious establishment. He's seen as a blasphemer because, of course, in his teaching, there's been moments where Jesus has claimed to be God. He's made it clear that he is the son of God. And so the religious leaders are appalled by him, many of whom hate him, and his very own colleagues are are plotting a way to, to get rid of Jesus. This ruler is so desperate to gain some assurance of eternal life that he's willing to go against the position of the very group that he's associated with. This is a big risk. Now, it's interesting that when he addresses Jesus, he addresses him as good teacher. This is very important. The term teacher is not the issue. There are a lot of teachers, a lot of rabbis in Israel, and they were teaching all different groups and all different theology. That wasn't unusual. The issue is that he called Jesus good. Good. This is not an accident. This man is an expert in the Jewish law. He knows it inside out. He knows more than anyone that the term good was reserved for God and God only. He knows this. And that's why Jesus picks up on this. Jesus is not asking the question because he's looking for an answer. Jesus is putting it out there, what the man just said. Like, do you realize what you're saying when you're calling me good? He says, why are you saying that I'm good? You know that only God is good. Because what the man is declaring is this. Even though it goes against what his group believes, he believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He believes that, and we know that. Otherwise, he wouldn't have called him good. Now, first, Jesus answers in what appears to be a superficial, standard answer. 
He begins to list the laws that the Sanhedrin would say are necessary to receive eternal life. But the man persists. He says, you don't understand Jesus. I've done all of these. I keep all of them, but I still feel empty. After I've done all the things you've said, I'm still not convinced that everything is okay with me. I need an answer. The man made the mistake of believing that he could control his eternal destiny purely by his actions, by his activities. And Jesus is going to teach him that it is true that how you live your life does have an impact on eternity, but it's much bigger than that. There's more to it than that. What the man needs most, what he needs more than anything, is to surrender his whole life to following Jesus, to genuinely have relationship with Jesus. Now, this is easier said than done. And that would prove to be the greatest obstacle in his request. And Jesus uses incredible shock value. This is, and I am convinced, this is not what this young man was expecting to hear off the lips of Jesus. We hear Jesus uses incredible shock value here to help him come, become aware of the reality of this life. This man needs a good dose of self-awareness, and Jesus is about to give it to him. The man is committed to meeting the requirements of the law, but he's become selective in which ones he's following. Now, Jesus, when Jesus quoted some examples, there's one that Jesus left out in his samples. The one that says, you will not have any other gods before me. And that's the one Jesus is about to address. It's true, young man. Most areas of your, li- your life are right. But there's one area that's not right. And it's the very area that's holding you back. It's the very area that's making you uneasy and uncomfortable and unconvinced that you are in right relationship with God and have a secure eternal destiny. So Jesus addressed it. And he said, here's what you have to do. You have to sell all of your possessions and then give the proceeds of your sale to the poor and then come follow me. He says, if you do that, I will guarantee you that you're going to have treasure in heaven. Relinquish your treasure here and you will have treasure there. The eternity question, the eternity concern that the man is wrestling with, well, it could be resolved if he's willing to do this. Now, is Jesus setting a pattern here that if we become a follower of his, that we should sell everything we have and give all the proceeds away? No, that's not the pattern he's setting for as a standard for everybody who follows him. This particular issue was the obstacle that hindered this particular man. This was his hang-up. This was his struggle. This was what was keeping him from following Jesus. And so, Jesus needed him to push aside the obstacle by surrendering everything to Jesus. It was not about what the man possessed. 
It wasn't sinful or wrong that the man was wealthy. It was not what the man possessed that caused him to fall short of what he longed for. It was what was possessing the man. It was his priorities. It was what he valued more than anything. And until this area was dealt with, the man would never experience what he was longing for the most. The situation gets resolved, but not how we might expect the resolution. We're told that Jesus' request made the man very sad. Now, we know one thing. Jesus did not come into the world to make people sad. Right? (laughs) But he made this man very sad. And the scripture says it's because he was very wealthy. Now, the word sad here is more than, you know, you know, something simple. Like last week, if I went to Starbucks on time, I could have got a reusable red cup that would have guaranteed me holiday drinks for $2 the rest of the season. I was sad when I went and they were all gone by 10 o'clock. I was sad. That's not what this is. That's a first world problem. That doesn't even qualify as a first world problem. That's a really snobby first world problem. Sad means to grieve a loss deeply. Now, a lot of us in this room have been there, right? When we've lost something really significant and we grieve it very deeply. The thought of doing what Jesus asked, the losses that are going to be associated with surrender is causing him to grieve. There's a lot at stake. Because if he gives away the wealth, he's thinking about the significant and implications of that. His possessions. He no longer would be able to have or even acquire in the future the things that right now his money can buy. It would be a significant shift in lifestyle for him. Secondly, his status and his influence would change. If he followed Jesus, well, he can't be a member of the Sanhedrin. He'd lose his respect. He'd lose his authority. He would lose his position. He would go from being somebody to being nobody. Thirdly, he'd lose his power. In his current position... His position gave him power over the general population. He's writing the laws. He's enforcing the laws. He's teaching the laws. These people are following what he's saying. He has decision-making authority. That's all going to be gone. Not to talk about the losses in his own family. Try explaining your decision to your rich father and brothers that you decided because you had this nagging feeling that maybe you weren't ready to go to heaven, that you sold everything and gave it away. Try telling your wife that she could no longer live the life that she's been accustomed to living. That's a tough conversation, theoretically. Try telling your children. I'm canceling your cell phone plan. We can't afford to keep it. I sold everything and gave it away. By the way, hand me the cell phones. We're giving them away. He's faced with a tremendous challenge, and he struggled with what to do. And I want us to note something really important. 
The man has come to the right person. He's with the right source. He's asking the right questions. And he's receiving the right answer. But despite all of this, he's about to make the wrong decision. Because he's not willing to surrender what Jesus is asking him to surrender. He came to Jesus because he lacked confidence in his eternal destiny. He was unhappy. He was unfulfilled. Yet when given the opportunity to get what he's longing for, he chose the temporal over the eternal. He chose what he was going to leave behind someday when life was over. He chose what had no eternal value over confidence of eternal life. And I want to note that this is the only story in Scripture of someone coming to Jesus, searching for something, searching for truth, and leaving without the solution. And the man left grieving. He now knows the truth about himself. He's got the full self-awareness. And he also knows what it is he needs to do. But the cost of surrendering is a cost that he considers too high to pay. So let's take a look at us. I want to conclude today by addressing three common struggles that are represented in this story. First, temporal over eternal. Misplaced priorities is one of the greatest struggles of our culture. North American culture is a driven culture. We are driven to succeed. We are driven to earn. We are driven to acquire. We are driven to have experiences. We are driven to have conveniences. We're driven to be focused on ourselves. That's very much our culture. And many a people have been swept into the raging current and they're drowning. They're drowning. Because culture has overpromised and underdelivered because that's the enemy's signature. That's what the enemy does. He overpromises and he underdelivers. He sets the bait and when we go for the bait, he switches the outcome. That's what he does. And so instead of the success and the money and the things and the experiences and the conveniences and the self-focus leading us to happiness and fulfillment and purpose, instead it's left us emotionally bankrupt, financially threatened, and relationally broken. That's where we've ended up. And the result is that marriages are a mess Families are a mess. Our children are a mess. Our finances are a mess. Our mental health is a mess. And in many ways, hang on, the church is a mess. If you don't think the church is a mess, read the paper about an atheist minister leading a Christian congregation. I don't get it. But then again, the church is a mess. We want to get out of the current. We want to get out of the pole. But we can't seem to break free. We wouldn't even know where to begin. And that's what happens when temporal things take priority over eternal things. Folks, we can't pretend that the raging current of the culture 
has not pulled the church in as well. I mean, let's, let's make the declaration. The emperor is not wearing pants, right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, I have a really good book suggestion for you. It'll take you about six minutes to read it. But if you can live by it, boy. Let's be honest. I mean, we can look at culture and blame and scream and get angry and sad and cry and whatever, but let's take our eyes off that for a minute and let's have a moment of self-awareness. We can't pretend that the raging current has not pulled the church in as well. For many churches and many of us as followers of Jesus, the temporary things, our passion for the priorities of culture have in some cases become more important to us than our passion for Jesus and our passion for the people that Jesus died for who are lost and broken. We can't fix anything unless we admit there's a problem. And folks, there's a problem. Not just with the culture. There's a problem with church in North American culture. And if we're going to live the mission, we must have first come to this point of coming to grips with our own priorities. What is that matters to us most of all? What is it that dominates our time? What is it that dominates our money? What is it that dominates our service? What is it that dominates our thoughts and our emotions, our worry and our concerns? That's what matters most. Is it temporary things that have no eternal value? That someday you will not be taking with you? Things that overpromise but underdeliver? That we're going to leave behind someday? Or will it be the eternal things? Are our priorities kingdom living above everything else? Relationship with Jesus above everything else? Others focused above ourselves, generous, generous beyond what we could even imagine generosity to be. If we're going to live the mission, it starts with us, but then we must also be prepared to help people whose priorities have been misplaced because that's who we're talking to out there who've experienced the disappointment and the devastation of a materialistic culture. And let me tell you, you can't lead people to where you're not going. <laughs> so if you haven't wrestled with what matters most to you and come to grips if it's something more than Jesus, then how are you going to help someone who's been let down by culture so broken and hurting and searching find him in the midst of it? You're not going to be able to. You can't take someone to where you have not been to where you are not going. Jesus said in Mark 8.36, what good is it for someone to gain the, old, the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Living the mission involves choosing the eternal over the temporal. Secondly, doing versus being. A challenge for those of us who are familiar with spirituality and church. The challenge for us, I believe, is to avoid being like the man in our story. When I read his story, you know, I'm not rich, I'm not young, and I'm not really much of a ruler. 
but I see myself in his story. To avoid being like the man in the story. Because we grow up going to church. We grow up hearing the stories that are found in Scripture. We end up being taught the Scriptures, and we memorize the Scriptures. And we can do all of that, yet our spirituality can be focused on what we have to do to please God so we can assure ourselves that, you know, He's pleased with us, and we're going to get in in the end. And the result is we tend to drift away from focusing on what matters most, which is a relationship with Jesus being the primary focus. And instead, we're focused on what it is we're going to do and how we're going to act and where we're going to go and where we're not allowed to go and what we believe as our primary focus. Why is that? Why is something so amazing as a relationship with Jesus, why does that get lost through the years in our attempts to do and be and go and act instead of relationship with him. Why is that? Why are we so inclined to default to doing instead of being? And I believe the answer to that is because it's a lot easier to do than it is to be. It's easy to do. Just give me the rules and I'll do it. Tell me how to work it. Tell me how it's done. Tell me what order you want it in. Tell me what I'm supposed to say, how I'm supposed to look. Just tell me and I'll do it. Easy. It's much easier to commit to activities than it is committing to having a relationship. It's much easier to perform external activities than it is to be deeply changed. To be deeply changed. Folks, there's so much more to being in relationship with Jesus than making sure that we fulfill the checklist that gives us the comfort that we'll get to go to be with Jesus when we die. There's so much more to having relationship with Jesus than that. Now, may I say something, and let me finish saying this before you storm out with the heresy posters. May I suggest today that going to be with Jesus for eternity when we die should not be the motivation for becoming a follower of Jesus. That shouldn't be why we became a follower of Jesus. But I'll let you know something. When I was growing up, the major focus of preaching and church and communication was centered to motivate people that if you don't want to go to hell when you die, let me make it as graphic as I can so I can scare the dickens out of you so you will come and follow Jesus. That's not why you should follow Jesus. Going to be with Jesus for eternity is a benefit and a significant one of having a relationship with him here and now. The motivation for being a follower of Jesus is the privilege of being in relationship with him. The privilege of having sins forgiven, of being set free, of living out his kingdom every day of our lives here on earth. That's why we follow Jesus. We get all of this and heaven too. But if we only focus on the end, like the rich young ruler, and not on the rest, like the rich young ruler, we've missed it. We've missed it. 
Living the mission means focusing on our relationship with Jesus as the primary priority of our lives and then joining with him to reach those who haven't chose to follow him yet. I believe what we need to rediscover is what it means to have true relationship with Jesus. To focus more on who Jesus is forming us to be than what we can try and do to make him happy. If we're going to live the mission, we must be prepared to help others shift their focus from a spirituality that involves doing in order to be right with God to a spirituality that focuses on relationship, Jesus shaping us into who he wants us to become. Doing versus being. Thirdly, you're really quiet. That's okay. I like quiet. Grasping versus surrender. There are often obstacles and hindrances in our lives that keep us from surrendering our lives completely to Jesus. Now, these obstacles vary from person to person. For this person, it's hurt. For this person, it's unforgiveness. For this person, it's sin. For another person, it's an addiction or circumstances. Another, it's pride. Another, it's, you know, control. Another, it's selfishness. Another, it's greed. And it just goes on. There's different reasons for different people that, that this is the obstacle that they need to surrender to come to Jesus. Some people choose to hold on to their hurts because, well, you know what? They've earned them at great price. And, and, and they just, as much as they complain about them and talk about them and, and, and it shapes them, really, I've met a lot of people in my life, they don't want to let their hurts go. They want to talk about them. They want to have counseling. They want to pray about them. But they don't want to let them go because the scars are deep and they came at great price and they've shaped my identity and I don't even know who I am without my scars. I can't give them up. Some people to hold, choose to hold on to unforgiveness because somebody hurt them and when they were hurt, it created a debt. And they can't release the requirement of that debt to that other person. And meanwhile, that other person doesn't care if you release it or not. You know, unforgiveness, someone said, is, you know, is, is, is like drinking poison and hoping that someone else dies. It doesn't make sense, but, but it's, it's the reality of many of us. We've been hurt, and the debt is deep, and someone owes us. And until they repay for the hurt that they've done, I can't let the debt go. And it's standing in the way of living for Jesus. Some people choose to hold on to their sin. They want God. They sincerely want God. But you know what? That sin in their life, they really like it. They really enjoy it. They, they want that at the same time. And it's controlling them. And so until they're ready to surrender, whatever that is, they can't find him. Some people are drowning in their addictions. Most addicts want out. They want release. But a lot of them are not willing to do what they need to do and they're not willing to partner with the Holy Spirit to do that deep-rooted work in overcoming their issues. They're deep-rooted. They're difficult. They're, they're down in there. They're just, they've taken control. 
It's not an easy thing. But they continue to struggle in them because they never really surrender them. Some people are so consumed with their circumstances that they can't see past them to the one who wants to be with them in their struggles, to the one that's working on them in the middle of their struggles. We talked about doing and being. You know how you become more of who Jesus wants us to be? It's through the hard times, the valleys, the painful experiences. Some people are too proud to admit I can't fix myself. I need to give myself to one who can change my life, but I'm too proud to admit that. So pride keeps us back. Some people love to be in control, and they can't bring themselves to trust in Jesus because if I'm going to trust in Jesus, that means i got to take my little fingers off of it. And so I have moments where I say, here it is, Jesus, and oh, by the way, can I get that back from you? You ever have those moments where I mean, I've had moments where I thought somebody was giving me something. It's embarrassing, right? Oh, thank you. And you're about to walk off with it. And they're like, oh, I'm not giving you that. Oh, whoops, right? And that's what we're like with Jesus sometimes. We, we act as if we're giving him something. But in the end, we're like, yeah, I'm going to need to take that back. I can't really let that go. I can't really trust you because if I trust you, I got to take my hands off it. And I'm just too much of a controlling person to trust this with you. Some people are selfish and greedy. They can't see past their desires, their priorities, and materialistic things. And I think sometimes our definition of what's greedy is way too up there when it should be down here more where we are. Because the truth is we are very possessed with material things and attaining and achieving and success. And sometimes these things stand in the way. Sadly, when these things are left unaddressed in our lives, they become obstacles to a true relationship with Jesus and an obstacle to living the mission. Why would you want to live the mission when you can't even get to the point where you give yourself wholly to Jesus? To grab a hold of what matters, we need to learn to let go of what's holding us back. Did you hear that? To grab a hold of what matters, we need to learn to let go of what's holding us back. And so living the mission means first we surrender everything in our lives to Jesus and then we join with him in helping others surrender their lives to Jesus as well. Again, how can you help someone surrender to Jesus if you haven't surrendered to Jesus? If we're going to live the mission, we need to understand that not everyone who encounters Jesus is going to be willing to do, and this is very important, what he is asking them to do. That is one of the significant learnings from this story, that someone can come to Jesus, they can be confronted with Jesus, he can have the answers to their solution, and they're still going to walk away, and it's no one's fault but their own. If we're going to live the mission, we're going to need to understand that there are going to be times that we are investing and loving and caring and walking with people, but at the end of the day, we need to be willing to accept and understand that not everyone who encounters Jesus does what Jesus asks them to do. And some of them are going to choose to walk away empty-handed. But that doesn't stop us from living the mission. I'm going to invite Tyler and the worship team back. Living the mission involves choosing the eternal over the temporal. Living the mission means focusing on our relationship with Jesus 
as the primary priority of our lives and joining with him to reach those who haven't chosen to follow him yet. Living the mission means we first surrender everything in our lives to Jesus. And then we join with him in helping others surrender their lives to Jesus as well. Folks, living the mission will create moments when we and those we are engaging will be faced with the challenge to surrender to Jesus the priorities that are hindering us from having relationship with him. And I'm going to invite you to stand with me because I believe this is one of those moments. And as I said earlier, all of us in this room are different. What's keeping you back is different than what's keeping somebody else back. What you have in common is that you're not able to go forward in the relationship with Jesus that he wants for us. And so as we're here in this moment this morning, I'm going to invite our prayer team to come. And if you're here today and you would like to pray with someone, if you'd like to talk with someone, if you want to be encouraged, if there are needs in your life, then we want you to come and pray. You may be here this morning and right in your seat, you just need to have that moment where you ask the Holy Spirit to show you and to magnify in your own life, what is it in me, God? What is it in me that's keeping me back? What's, what's the obstacle? Is there an obstacle? What's standing in the way? Maybe some of you are in this place this morning and maybe you don't know a lot about church and faith and the Bible and all that stuff, but you just know that you know that there's something inside of you that craves for something real, something life-changing, hope, happiness, fulfillment. And it doesn't matter what you've done and you've been a lot of places and you've done a lot of things and you've tried a lot of things, but at the end of the day, you just lie in your bed and you're just as empty as when you started. I want you to know today that until we get to the point that we surrender our lives to Jesus, we're never going to know the intent for which we were created and the purpose that he's created us to live. We're not going to know that fulfillment and that joy. So maybe for you this morning, that's a decision that you want to make. And we would encourage you to do so. We want to pray with you about that. So prayer team, would you come? Worship team, would you lead us? If you want prayer this morning, you can come. Otherwise, and at the end of our prayer time, in a few moments, we're going to, as a congregation, sing our national anthem and pray for our great nation that God will continue to allow us to serve him freely here and to see change in this country for his glory and for his honor.